family is exactly what we're going to be talking about today. So if you'll open with me to Ephesians chapter 5 and just have that at the ready. I want to lay a foundation first with just a few comments and a reference to another scripture. But we're going to be spending a good deal of time in Ephesians 5 today. I want to talk to you about why God loves families, why he loves families. So while you're turning there, let me pray very briefly and we will begin. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for the strength and the power that you are always ready to impart to your people. Lord, there are different states of the family represented in this room today, God. We have people from families that are whole and sound and healthy. Uh, Lord, we have people from families all the way on the other end of the spectrum that have known a good deal of brokenness and heartache, and we have everything in between. But Lord, I thank you, God, that you're able to heal any breach that the enemy has brought. Lord, you are able to heal any bit of pain that has been caused by people's poor choices and betrayals. And God, we're going to be talking about your ideal today. But Lord, when we talk about your ideal and the way you wanted things to be, that never brings shame. God, it brings us something to look to. It brings us hope because where we're empty and where we're lacking, where relationships have failed us on the part of man, you're ready to fill those gaps in with your grace and with your goodness. So Lord, I pray that you would challenge us today. Lord, you would enliven our hearts today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Praise God. Have you ever heard people say, I just can't imagine bringing kids into a world like this? Yeah. It's a very reasonable fear, but it's not biblical. It's not a biblical fear. God has actually determined the family to be one of the chief ways that he confronts evil in society. We miss that sometimes. You know, we can very easily look at what's happening in our world and we can list reason after reason after reason why we would not want to have children, why we would not want to start a family in an age like this, in a society like this. And we would be very reasonable people for drawing such a conclusion. But imagine for a moment that you're living back in, say, the days of Exodus chapters 1, 2, and 3. And if you decide to have a family, you're not going to be able to give your children a life of privilege. Uh, you will not be able to give them a life of comfort. Any child that you have will be born under the lash of a whip. Uh, they will be born with chains on their feet. They will be born into a life of slavery. And that's exactly what Moses' parents in the Old Testament knew that their sons, their daughters would be born into. They knew that if we have children right now, they will only know slavery. We cannot give them freedom. We cannot give them any uh, kinds of special uh, luxuries in life. They'll be deprived of all of that. Imagine knowing that if you have kids, the only kind of life you'll be able to give them is one of destitution. And, you know, that's not something that this country's totally unfamiliar with, you know. And what I want to bring out here is the fact that God's people, at one point or another, in one way or another, have always had to contend with this fear. Do I want to have a family now? Do I want to have kids in an hour like this? And when you read the story in the Exodus and you see Moses' parents knowing that if I have a son, I have to throw him in the river. That's what I'm being commanded to do by my government. The government says, Pharaoh says, kill all the boys. Throw your sons into the water so they can drown. Imagine living under that. In some ways we are because on an ideological level, we're being told kill all masculinity. Throw your sons in the river. So in some ways we're not far off from what they were experiencing but thank God that they didn't fear the command of Pharaoh. They didn't fear the command of the king. They had children anyway. And they produced a young man who would eventually grow up to save God's people from their slavery and lead them into freedom, 
lead them into sovereignty as a nation. And it all started because one couple refused to be afraid of what was happening in their society. A mother and a father refused to be governed by the terror of, of evil ideas. They refused to be governed by the culture. And they said, we're going to do this God's way. And when you read in Malachi chapter 2, verse 15 says this, did God not make them one? Speaking of husband and wife, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? In other words, why did God create marriage? Because he sought godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And the first critical point that we want to make today is that the purpose of the family unit is to glorify God. That is the purpose of the family. It's to glorify God and to make him known. In Malachi 2.15, God is spelling out to a group of people who had lost sight of the meaning of marriage. They were divorcing each other left and right over frivolous, ridiculous reasons. And he's saying, the whole reason I created this is because I wanted you to have a family. I wanted to make myself known through you having children. By bringing a husband and a wife together and then producing offspring, then producing sons and daughters, he would glorify himself in the earth. And that purpose has not changed. When you think about how God has used the family, when he wanted to start the world, he made Adam and Eve. When God wanted to start a nation, he found Abraham and Sarah. When he wanted to save that nation, he found Amram and Jochebed, the parents of Moses. And when God wanted to save the world, he found Joseph and Mary. God has always used the family to make himself known. Anytime God has wanted to do something great, anytime he's wanted to confront evil, anytime he's wanted to do something about the darkness swallowing up a land or a culture, he's found a family. He's looked for a barren womb. He's looked for a man and a wife who would say, here we are, send us, take us, and use our house to glorify yourself. The purpose of the family is to glorify God. Let me give you two other points that go along with that. First of all, God has always used families to further his kingdom. He's always used them. Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Amram and Jochebed, Joseph and Mary, and Satan. Satan hates godly families because they threaten him. They threaten him. The devil hates families. That's why they're always under attack. Whether it was Pharaoh saying, kill all the boys whether it was some other genocide that was taking place, whether it was in Malachi where you have husbands divorcing their older wives because they want to marry younger women, or whether it's what we have going on today, Satan hates the family because it's a threat to him. Happy homes threaten his kingdom and they threaten his works. Godly homes are dangerous to what he's trying to do. God uses the family for his glory. And this is where Ephesians 5 is going to come in. And I want to show you Something that we often miss, a connection here. We're going to start off in verse 15, and we're going to read through to verse 22 and then skip through into chapter 6. I'll tell you what verses. I don't want to read it all just for the sake of time. But Ephesians 5.15 says this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And verse 9, masters do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Now the reason why I skipped around like that is not just to save time, but I want you to see something. In verses 15 through 21, Paul is talking about what it looks like to live a spirit-filled life. He's talking in the whole chapter about what it means to live a life of holiness, a life of godliness. He talks about behavior. He talks about what kind of jokes you should and should not be telling, what kind of speech you should be using, relationships, all sorts of things. He gets to verse 18 and he says, be filled with the spirit. And when you read it in Greek, it's something that's ongoing. It means keep on being filled. Keep on seeking more and more of the Holy Spirit's power in your life. And then in verse 19, he starts unpacking what that looks like. What does it look like to be continually experiencing growth in the spirit's power? And he talks about corporate worship, coming together as the body of Christ, singing to the Lord, giving thanks to God. And he ends in verse 21 by saying that living the spirit-filled life looks like submission to one another. It looks like esteeming your brother or your sister as better than yourself, considering the interests of those in the body as more important than your own. But then he unpacks that even further. And what did we just read about but him giving commands concerning every member of the Christian household? The wife, the husband, the children, the father, the bondservant, the homeowner. He goes through every member of the Christian household. In other words, when we talk about the spirit-filled life, Paul says you're not done describing it until you've talked about how it should affect your family. The spirit-filled life actually begins in your living room. Before it starts taking shape in here, before it starts coming out in our worship, before the filling power of the Holy Spirit is experienced in our ministry and how we do evangelism and outreach, for Paul, the thing he discusses the most, more than he talks about singing and theology and fellowship, he talks about the family. Devotes several paragraphs to it. And sometimes we miss that. Now, on a very comforting level, it tells us that you need the power of the Holy Spirit to be a good couple. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to be a godly son, a godly daughter, a godly father or mother. We cannot be godly families without the Holy Spirit's power operating in and through our lives. You need him. But what that also tells us is that he's dedicated to giving you what you need to do that. We talk over and over again from this pulpit about how in Jesus Christ you have everything you need to live a godly life. Everything you need to fulfill the call of God on your life. Guess what? Your family's part of your calling. You need more amens than that. Thank you. I can't tell you how many men specifically, men specifically, I can't tell you how many people I've had to tell over the past several months that your family is kingdom business. For some reason, we've, we've committed this rather grievous sin against the Lord and we've separated our calling from our family. 
I've got my calling from God, my destiny. You know what somebody prophesied over me that I would be doing. Then I've got my wife and my kids. Absolutely not. Your wife and your children are your first ministry. Your wife and your children are your first ministry. If somebody laid hands on you and prophesied that God would be sending you to do A, B, and C, praise God, that's wonderful. But if you've got a wife and a kids, they're first. They're first. They are first. And that, goes, that tragically goes against the grain of our thinking. I remember the first time I heard somebody dare to say that. It made me very uncomfortable because I'd been conditioned to believe otherwise. But I'm convinced 1,000% that that's backwards thinking. It's totally backwards thinking. If I am a better man in this pulpit than I am in my living room, God have mercy on me. If I have more favor and more admiration with people and congregations that I might never get to meet, but my son isn't interested in being like me, God have mercy on me. What is the point of winning the world and losing my boy? What is the point of winning the world for Jesus, winning the city for Jesus, but I can't even lead my wife? What would be the point of that? What kind of a testimony is that? I'm in full-time occupational ministry, and I'm telling you, my wife and my son come before speaking engagements. And that's how all of us need to start thinking. Our living room is our first place of ministry. Our living rooms are our first place of ministry. The spirit-filled life, experiencing his power, his transformation in us. Our families have to be the first benefactors of that. They have to be the first ones to benefit from that. They've got to be the first ones to taste of it. And this is our second point that I want to draw out today, that the Spirit empowers the family unit to glorify God. If the purpose of the family is to glorify Him, the power to do that comes from the Holy Spirit. Right along with that, a Spirit-filled life should directly impact your family. Paul spends more time in this passage talking about the family than he does about worship, than he does about theology, than he does about behavior, anything he talks about family relationships. And if you'll look for one more point there, all family commands are based on loving, mutual submission. And I really want to highlight that. If we could even leave that out there for just a moment. All family commands are based on loving, mutual submission. Verse 21 says that if you're spirit-filled, you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because the very next command is to the women, and this is the one that gets a bad rap because it's horribly misunderstood and abused. Wives, submit to your husbands. Here's the thing. Before anybody, before the wives, the children, or the servants are told to submit to anyone, the whole church is told to submit to each other. In other words, all the following commands for submission on an individual level, on a role-based level, are being given on a foundation of equality. In other words, all the men, the husbands, the fathers, the homeowners are being told very clearly, just because you're in charge doesn't mean you're superior. Just because you're in charge doesn't mean you're more valuable. That's not the way the work, that works in the kingdom of God. That's not how it goes with Jesus. You might be in charge. You might be given a role of authority, but that doesn't make you the MVP. You serve them because they are just as valuable in the kingdom as you are. So before he starts telling anybody specifically, you're in a submissive or obedient role, he makes it very clear, everybody submits to each other. And that actually governs all the, the way we understand all the commands following it. And as we go through to discuss this, we're going to focus on the men today. Okay, and yes, it is Father's Day, so we're going to do that. But it's also because the men are addressed more than any other party in the whole passage. The women are only addressed one time. 
And it's not even the women, it's just the wives. He doesn't say anything to single women. He only speaks to the wives. He speaks to the children. He speaks to the bond servants. But the thing is, there's one group of people who's addressed three times in every set. It's the men, the husbands, the fathers, the homeowners. And the reason why that's important is because it shows us the amount of responsibility that God has attached to manhood in this life. It shows us the weight of responsibility that he's put in to being a godly husband, being a godly father. When you say yes to a woman at an altar, it's not just like, all right, dishes are going to be done. I've got this, you know, all those, you know, chauvinistic stereotypes that are going through. You are saying yes to a life of servant leadership. That's what you're saying yes to. You're saying yes to ministry. When, when a couple agrees, we want to have kids, let's start a family. You're, you're not doing something that's meant to fulfill yourself, although having a family is extremely fulfilling, you know? But you're saying yes to a life of ministry. And so with our next point, fathers lead the family unit in glorifying God. The purpose of the family is to glorify him. The power to do that comes from the spirit and fathers lead in this role. Fathers are meant to lead the family unit in glorifying God in three ways. The first one is that they are to continually win the heart and trust of their wives. They are to continually win the heart and trust of their wives. And I worded that very carefully and very deliberately. This is not to be like, well, I'm on the bus. I don't need to run to keep up with it now. No, you need to keep fighting for the heart of your wife, gentlemen. We need to keep the romance alive. We need to keep the, the passion alive in our marriages. That's what God has called us to do. You know, th- when you look at the comparison that he makes between husbands and Christ, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy. It's very interesting. He's basically saying Jesus died for his bride so he could invest in her. We don't think of marriage like that as men. We don't. But Paul is actually telling us right here in this passage that look, you are meant to make your marriage a life of investment in your spouse. We don't have enough men that are devoted to making their wives look and feel good. And that's one of the things that needs to change. That's something that we have to be very deliberate about doing. You know, every man, I I said this in a a couple weeks ago, I was preaching at a church in Rhode Island and I'll I'll bring it out here. You know, guys, we love to think of ourselves like in a a kind of Rambo sort of context. Every man is okay with, you you need to be willing to die for that woman. Yeah, and we we conjure up images of running into burning buildings and, you know, (laughs) rescuing her out of it. And, you know, just, oh, my hero. But when she says, please pick up your socks. We're not interested in dying for anybody at that point. But that's where she wants you to die, you know? And sometimes we have to get a little less heroic in our imagery of this. You know, but this is the stuff that Paul has in mind. When we say yes to marriage, we say yes to a life of ministry. We say yes to a life of investment in somebody else. I thank God for my wife. I thank God for her. She's the most supportive person in the world. She's the bravest woman that I know but I'm actually called to make sure she's able to thrive in life. God's gonna hold me accountable for if she feels stifled, if she feels that 
she has no life outside the home, and she has no life outside of being Nick's wife, and, and this and that's, that's actually a kind of oppression that I'm going to be held accountable for. That's what Paul is saying here. Jesus died to invest in his bride, to beautify her for his own honor and for his own glory. Christian husbands are meant to think of their wife's ability to thrive as a matter of their own honor, as a matter of their own honor. We have this horrible stereotype that you get a wife that's real submissive. She always says yes and everything like, yeah, I've got it. That's not honorable. That's not honorable at all. This is a life and relationship of mutual submission. And the most amazing thing is that when this is done right, this is a spirit-empowered relationship that gives the world a picture of what it looks like to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. That's what it's meant to be. When my wife and I were preparing for our wedding day, Pastor Carter told us, I think, 10 times at least, he says, when people look at your marriage, it should be like taking them to church. And that has stuck with us. And that's been our goal. And my responsibility is to model Christ to my wife in our home. And I don't always do that right. Most days I fail at it pretty badly. But I want to keep myself on a track of growth. And you know, one of the things I found, and guys, this is, this is really critical, this This will keep you on a growth track. Ask her how you're doing. I dare you. (laughs) Ask her how you're doing. Because we don't always deal well with criticism. And that'll really tell you how how, how honestly she answers will give you a true assessment of how well you're doing. If she feels safe to really go go deep, I mean, okay, that's, that's actually a pat on the back right there. Women who don't feel safe being honest with their husbands, that's already... That's already a very bad sign. It's already a very bad thing. But are we cultivating an atmosphere of safety in our homes? Are we cultivating an atmosphere of understanding? Do our wives feel that we're investing in them, that we're devoted to them, that we're cherishing them, that we value them? Or do we just harp on submission all day long, forgetting that this is a mutual relationship? Fathers lead the family unit in glorifying God by continually winning the heart and the trust of their wives. The second thing that... The scripture shows us that fathers are meant to do is to lead the family in glorifying God by inspiring devotion to Jesus in their children. They lead the family to glorify God by inspiring devotion to Jesus in their children. In chapter 6, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you. You may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word provoke is a very strong word in Greek. It has to do with exasperation. It's where you make someone so upset, you make them so angry that they will cross a moral boundary to express their anger. It leads to evil action. It's basically a person who is so angry that they'll become vengeful. They're so angry they'll do something just for spite They'll say something nasty. They'll do something wrong simply because they want to communicate how upset and angry they are. And Paul is basically telling the fathers in the community, you have the power to inspire or exasperate your kids. You have the power to repel them from Christ or to draw them to Christ with the way that you parent them and with the way that you model Jesus to them in the home. And he doesn't give a lot of comment on how to do this. He simply says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And in a lot of ways, that's all we, all we need to know. It basically means that 
you know, dads, deal with your kids the way that Jesus has dealt with you. Deal with your kids the way that Jesus has dealt with you. And and maybe some of us aren't familiar enough with the mercy of God, but I can tell you, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that Jesus has not dealt with me with the way that sometimes I find myself wanting to deal with my boy. Because I'm so easily frustrated. I get angry. I get impatient. And I find myself wanting to express that. And sometimes it's really hard to put on the brakes with a three-year-old, man. They do not come equipped with common sense along with a host of other qualities that you wish were there, that you have to instill those things in them. You know, but God is the perfect parent. He really is. And the more that we experience his mercy, the more we experience his forgiveness and his love in our lives, the more we're actually given a picture of what it means to bring our children up in the Lord. And really, just like I said, ask your wife how you're doing. Sometimes we have to be humble enough to ask our kids. Sometimes we have to be humble enough to repent to our kids. You know, I can't ask my son just yet. He's not able to communicate on that level. But I tell him that I'm sorry. I've apologized to my little boy several times already. I don't know how much he understood or not, but there have been times I've grabbed him up and I said, buddy, daddy's so sorry. I I shouldn't have said that to you. That was wrong. I'm sorry. And he just pats my face with his little hand. He says, daddy, it's okay. I love you. You know, and he's awesome. (laughs) He really is. He's the best. And look, here's the thing. I'm not a better dad than God is. I'm not a better dad than he is. I can tell you exactly where I got that from. God's never needed to apologize to me. He's never owed me one. But that kind of humility that I've had to show my son, I've seen modeled in him in some other way. No one is more humble than God. He left heaven. He left all of his glory. He left his divine enthronement to come down here and be rejected by people he came to save. There is no one more humble than our God. He has already modeled perfect humility. And we're meant to reflect that. And really, that's what everything comes down to. When it, when it comes to the responsibility of the man in the home, it has to do with modeling Christ. How are you making Jesus look to those that are closest to you? That's the burning question at the heart of this passage. What does it look like to live a spirit-filled life in the home? It looks like modeling Jesus. Are you drawing your family to him or are you pushing them from him? I want my son to be drawn to the Jesus that he sees in me. I don't want him to grow up thinking that he wants no part of it. You know, the most rewarding moments that my wife and I ever have are when we hear him pray at night. You know, we pray together every night before we we go to bed. And ever since he, you know, started really getting better at, at talking, and he's smart as a whip. But we'll take turns. Daddy will pray, then mama will pray, and okay, now Noah prays. And, you know, it's the same thing with him every night, but it's just awesome. And right now he's been praying, God, help me to be strong like you, real big and strong like you, God, and, and, and help me not be afraid of the dark. In Jesus' name, amen, you know? And I, we always praise him for those prayers. We praise him for those prayers. Good job, buddy. That, is, that was awesome. What a great prayer. Because I want to encourage that in him. That he, that, that he doesn't sound stupid when he does it. That he's not performing. That, that God is taking him seriously. That we're taking him seriously. And every now and then his, his little voice will pipe up from the living room or from the back seat of the car. Just, Dad, I love Jesus. And I'm telling you, there is nothing more rewarding than that. There is nothing more rewarding than that. There's nothing. And you can ask those questions. Well, he's three. He's just parroting back things. I don't care what he's doing, man. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, God has perfected praise. Let him say it. 
Let him say it. Because there's nothing more rewarding. I could have, you know, I, I recently deleted, uh, you know, Facebook and everything off of my phone just because obviously you get caught up in the, the binge swiping. And before you know it, you've just, oh my goodness, it's been three hours. Where's the time gone? Well, never that bad, but, you know, and I, I got rid of it because one of those things I'm, I'm finding more and more, and maybe this will be a, a future topic we get to do here, how social media is uh, really making us addicted as a society, you know, because you can actually release chemicals in your brain that stimulate you uh, and they, they become addictive because it's instant gratification and it's actually making us chemically addicted to things like our phones and social media. And, you know, if you are in the spotlight in any measure, and especially especially there, if you're concerned with followers and likes and this and that and shares, uh, shares on sermons, comments on sermons, uh, likes on sermons, you know, it can become binding. Can become addictive. And I was like, you know what? Delete. I'm not falling into that trap, man. I, I'm not interested in getting caught up in that because it's poison. It really is poison. And you know, hearing my son say those things like that is more rewarding than 10 billion likes on any social media platform on anything that I've tweeted, anything that I've ever said. I want that, man. I want that. If I, if I miss out on opportunities, if I miss out on, on this and that and the other because I went to a soccer game instead or be, because I did this or that with my son because we, we went playing in mud in the creek, if, if, it, if it will produce that, if it will lead to him saying, I love Jesus, then pff, it, you can have it all. Let somebody else do it. God can send somebody else to that big event, to that big speaking engagement. I've got plenty of opportunity. I've got plenty of responsibility, but I don't want him to ever feel like he has to compete with something for my love or my attention. I don't ever want my son to feel like he's got to compete with something for that. And Pastor Carter talked about that so much this morning about the self-focus. And that's the thing, men. The reason why we get so self-focused is because we want a mission. Something good that God put inside of us has been corrupted in a lot of ways. The thing is, the mission's right in front of you if you're married. The mission's right in front of you if you have kids. Stop looking in the office for the mission. Stop looking at the gym for the mission. The mission's in your living room. The thing you should be most given to, the thing that you should be most devoted to, you, to is right there. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. We, we, we desire a sense of purpose. We, that was drilled into us. God created man in some respects for work. He put Adam in the garden to dress it and to keep it, to cultivate it and protect it. That's ingrained in us. It's a good thing for men to hunger for, for risk and danger, to want to be tough. We're designed that way, to accomplish something, to stand up and, and do something hard and difficult. That's ingrained in us. That's part of being in the image of God. But don't skip your living room. Don't skip over your family and think that it's out there. There is no greater journey that we can take than the journey of family. There's nothing more manly than a, than a godly husband being affectionate with his wife and with his children. There's nothing more powerful than that. There's nothing stronger than that. That's where we need to rise up most. That's where we need to stand the tallest. Because that's where the world is trying to put us down. Strong, confident men have never, ever been a problem for society, ever, contrary to what we're being told today. Men being strong and rising up to take their place has never been one of the reasons why there's been injustice or oppression. Sinners who have abused power is the cause of injustice and oppression. Good men standing up and taking their place is what counteracts injustice and oppression. 
We're meant to be the antidote to the things that so many out there are complaining about right now. Fathers are meant to lead their families in glorifying God by winning the hearts and the trust of their wives, by inspiring devotion in their children, and thirdly, by handling authority with justice and integrity. Now, in verses five through nine, thank God, we do no longer have the the dynamic in the household of of servants and, and masters. Thank God we no longer have that. And when you're reading passages like this in scripture, sometimes the New Testament writers had to deal with societal dynamics that we no longer have. And what you do then when you're interpreting and applying scripture is you look for what's the closest cultural parallel that we have. What do we have today in our family life, in our family unit that can speak out of this passage to us? And what I find best relates to this is with regard to how we as men, how we as husbands and fathers handle authority as an employee, as an employer, as a leader, as a follower, whatever the case might be, how do you model authority? to your wife and to your children at home? Are you producing rebels? Are you producing more people who think that authority is just a bad thing that needs to be shunned all the time and resisted? When you handle authority, are are you a model of injustice? Are you a bit of a tyrant? Or do you show generosity and kindness in the way that you lead? What are you demonstrating in the way that you handle authority? And we don't... Because again, it's not just what they see as far as you handling some position. How are you at your job or in your workplace? But how are you exercising authority within your home? I, I've, known, I've known many, many a wife and many a child, unfortunately. And they're usually, it's usually after a divorce, but following some tragic happening in the home where they just, they, want, they don't want to hear anything about male headship. They don't want to hear anything about submission or anything of the sort because as far as they're concerned, and they have a lot of good reasons to think this. I'm not discounting what they've been through, but as far as they're concerned, they have every reason to get rid of that. Every reason to get rid of it. And it's because they saw a representation of godly authority in the home that was entirely ungodly. They saw an exercise of authority and power in the home that was nothing like the way Jesus exercises power and authority. And that's what we have to make sure we're not allowing to happen. May God give us wisdom. May God give us wisdom and grace to be like him. May he give us the overflowing power of his spirit to be like him in the way that we love our wives, in the way that we lead our children, in the way that we handle authority in the home and in the workplace. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to do this. We can't be the households that God intended us to be without him filling us and coming upon us. I want to give you one more point and then we're going to close for today. We must fight for the family unit to glorify God. I do not think it's an accident that right after Paul finishes talking about the household, he starts talking about spiritual warfare. Because in verse 10, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God. Right after he gets done talking about the power of the spirit filling our homes, He talks about fighting in the power of the spirit. And it's not that he's only talking about spiritual warfare as it pertains to the household, but I do not think he was at all doing it accidentally, putting these two things right next to each other. Your living room is a place of spiritual warfare, folks. Your family must be a matter of spiritual warfare. Our our husbands, our wives, our, our sons and our daughters, no matter what role you play in the house, we've got to fight in prayer for our families. No matter how healthy or unhealthy your family is, you fight in prayer. 
Because he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. If the devil's scheming against your family, if he's scheming against your marriage, if he's scheming against your, your parent-child relationships, if he's scheming against your relationships with your siblings, it's time to fight. It's not time to get bitter and angry and complain. It's time to make war. It's time to open the word of God and start praying his promises and, and putting the enemy in his place again. That's what it's time to do. We have to fight for this. Spiritual warfare must be a natural component of family life. Spiritual warfare, that's our last point for today. It must be a natural component of family life. It's got to be. We can't be passive. We can't be passive. We've got to be spiritually aggressive in fighting for our marriages. When we see selfishness creeping in, when we see seeds of betrayal being sown, when we, when we see our children being tempted and, and, and being pulled in ungodly directions, it's time to fight. That's when we've got to stand. That's when we've got to rise. And that's not only for the men. That's not only for the fathers. Thank God for praying moms. Thank God for praying grandparents. Thank God for... And I know there's a lot of different family dynamics we face in the church. And we're talking about an ideal today. And, and look, even those of you that, if there are grandparents that are raising their kids, whether online or, or in this house, if they're single moms, look, your lack is not crippling your kids. God will make up what you can't provide for them. God will fill in where you feel empty. Where men have failed you, God will step in. Because he's the perfect husband. He's the perfect father. No one needs to feel like they're going to rob their children of something because something was taken from them. When we talk about these things, it shouldn't bring shame. It should bring hope. I'd like to invite all of us to stand. And the altar call is, I mean, really, it's something I'm sure all of us could answer. And don't feel compelled to come down just for the sake of coming down. If your heart is burdened, feel free. But I would just like to encourage all of us to believe God for our families. If your family is under attack, you just know that the devil is scheming against it. If maybe that you, you have some things, whether you're the husband, the wife, whatever, if there are things you need to repent of and get right with God so that your family can be restored, do that. Don't wait another day. And repentance doesn't just mean you and Jesus. It means you and whoever in your family you owe that apology to. We have to have that kind of humility. But let's make war today. Let's have a time of worship and then let's go to war for our families. And if you want to come pray at the altar, you're more than welcome to do that. It's not that there's something magical down here. We just believe in responding with our whole selves, even our bodies coming down to the front and saying, God, I'm obeying what you said today. God, I'm responding to what you said today. I'm fighting for my family today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Lord, we ask you for spirit-filled families today. God, and everything that that means. Lord, I pray that you would teach us how to walk in the power of your spirit every day. Lord, not just in church. God, we don't want to be better people in church than we are at home. God, that's why we need your strength so badly. Lord, to represent Christ to those who see us when we're most vulnerable is not an easy thing, but that's the life that you've called us to. You've called us to a life of, of overwhelming power, oh God. Lord, you've called us to a life that that takes us beyond our weaknesses, Lord, so that even when we are our most open, God, even when we're in settings where we can't hide who we truly are, Lord God, that we would even there, in those settings, Lord, in our most intimate relationships, we would have the power to be like Jesus. God, that's why we need your power. That's why we need you, Holy Spirit, in our homes every day. God, I pray for those here who have unsaved family members in the home that they're living with, God. 
Lord, I pray that you would give them strength and great grace, O oh God, to be a light in the midst of darkness. Lord, I pray that their family would be compelled to your feet by what they see in them, O oh God. Lord, I pray that the, the power of your gospel would be so evident in their life, O oh Lord God. Father, even those who are saved, but they have unsaved parents they're not living with anymore, siblings that, that still need Jesus. God, I'm asking, Lord, that the transformation, the change that, that you've done in them would be so evident, Lord. It would be so, so obvious and blatant, Lord. Their family, oh God, would be compelled, Lord. They would know something is going on here. Something has happened to them because this is not what they were like. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would reach our families, oh God. Lord, the most lost members, Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would bless the marriages in this place, oh Lord God. Father, Lord, even for those that are, if there are any, God, whether online or what, Lord, that are just on the brink of divorce, oh God. Father, I pray that you would rescue those unions, oh God. Lord, marriage is sacred to you. You bookended scripture. Lord, the Bible begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage, oh God. It begins with Adam being bound to Eve. It ends with Jesus being bound to his church for eternity. This is a sacred relationship, so we fight for it, God. Lord, strengthen the husbands and the wives, oh God. Cause them to stand. Lord, I pray that you would rid them of all selfishness, Lord. God, I pray in Jesus' name where there's betrayal. Lord, let there be repentance and forgiveness, oh God. You know the difficulties, Lord. You know the challenges, God, and you're able to overcome them all. Father, for wayward children, bring them home again, God. Bring them back to what they were taught growing up, oh Lord Jesus Christ. Father, there are so many different dynamics, so many different challenges that we could face, Lord, so many different situations, but the answer for all of them is the same. You have given us the power of your spirit so that our homes can be filled, so that our families can be a threat to darkness and to evil, and that's what we're asking you for. And we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. God bless you.